Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. I'm Ian Wolfe. This edition of Diffusion is slightly fuller than Peter Garrett's head of hair and a lot more accurate than Hillary Clinton on the campaign trail. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the science we're about to cram into your head. We'll be giving you another dose of syphilis from John August, probing space with Lachlan Watmore, and Chris Rayberg will be exploring the unusual case of Tasmanian tigers in South Australia. But first up... Here's the news with Victoria Bond. A newly published article in this week's Nature may have the key to the two billion year delay of life on Earth. Although eukaryotes developed roughly 2.7 billion years ago, they didn't dominate the Earth until about two billion years later, a finding which has surprised scientists. New findings have suggested that this lapse may have been due not only to oxygen deficiency in the Earth's oceans at that time, but also mylobdenum deficiency. Mylobdenum is used by some bacteria to convert nitrogen from its gaseous form to a form which is useful for living beings, a process called nitrogen fixation. Eukaryotes are unable to fix nitrogen at all, and thus depend on bacteria for their organic nitrogen supply. Eukaryotes today are able to flourish because there's more than enough nitrogen to go around. But if mylobdenum was scarce, then the bacteria would not have been able to produce nitrogen at a fast enough rate to satisfy demand, and there wouldn't have been enough to go around for eukaryotes to benefit. Timothy Linz, at the University of California, Riverside, speculates that the low levels of mylobdenum early on may have retarded the development of life by two billion years. The metal was scarce back then because there was so little oxygen at the atmosphere at the time. Today, mylobdenum is the most abundant transition metal in the oceans due to the fact that oxygen reacts with mylobdenum-bearing minerals on rocks. In a soon-to-be-published story in the Journal of Genes and Development, scientists from UT Southwestern Medical Center have made a discovery about fertilization which may lead to a malarial vaccine. They found that, like fertilization, infection with malaria is a two-step process. First, two reproductive cells must latch on together by using one protein. Second, these cells must fuse their membranes together and exchange genetic material by using another protein. When the scientists blocked the two malarial cells from fusing, the spread of malaria stopped. Currently, no vaccine against malaria exists, but perhaps in the future, vaccinating infected individuals to prevent the com completion of the fusion steps may help prevent the spread of the disease, which kills about one million people each year, primarily children in sub-Saharan Africa. Dr. Snell from UT Southwestern has been studying the mechanism behind fertilization in Chlamydomonas, a single-celled green algae. He found that while the protein responsible for the first step, which is whether the two reproductive cells can bind together, is unique for each species, the protein responsible for the second step, which is fusing into a single cell, could be more universal. In particular, the researchers identified the gene HAP2. For the parasites that cause malaria, fusion is controlled by a gene not found in mammals, so blocking this step might prove effective in stopping the spread of the disease. Collaborating research at the Imperial College in London found that blocking HAP2 also prevented the fusion of reproductive cells in plasmonium cells, which cause malaria. When mice were injected with organisms lacking HAP2, mosquitoes that later bit the mice did not become infected, and therefore could not spread the infection to other mice. This indicates that without HAP2, 
Plasdemonium could not reproduce in the mosquito's gut, a vital step in the cycle of infection. Rayberg from Where Light Meets Dark takes a closer look at a Tasmanian tiger sighting in South Australia. Last week we kicked off this segment with a look at a modern day sighting of Thylacolio carnifex, one of Australia's marsupial lions, more commonly believed extinct for several tens of thousands of years. This week I thought we should move down the scale of size a little and look at the Tasmanian tiger or thylacine. The Tasmanian tiger is the largest carnivorous marsupial predator in the world known to have lived during the past 200 years. It was about the size and shape of a large dog, but proportionally it was quite long for its low height. Its most obvious and striking feature was a series of stripes that ran across its back and down its flanks on the rear half of its body. It also had a phenomenal gape, being able to open its jaws to 120 degrees. The last known captive Tasmanian tiger died in September 1936 in Beaumaris Zoo in Hobart, Tasmania. Most people seem to agree that the thylacine probably survived in small numbers in the wild for a few years beyond that before finally succumbing to extinction. However, despite numerous searches, no one has been able to procure a body, dead or alive, and I might point out it is now illegal to kill thylacines or capture them without a permit. There have been rumours of bodies such as one story, which has a Tasmanian rabbit trapper, Bert Maher, capture a thylacine in 1953. He kills the animal, locals get wind of the news, a newspaper pub publishes the story, and fauna board officials, one from New South Wales, the other, also a policeman, pay the man a visit. They take the tiger's skin, and also that of a spotted-tailed quoll, and in the minutes of the board's meeting in May 1953, it only records that the trapper was warned about killing native fauna. Needless to say, Mr. Maher believes they presented the quoll skin to the board and kept the thylacine skin to themselves. Why would officials want to cover up the rediscovery of the thylacine only 17 years after its extinction? Well, the answer involves conspiracy theory on top of conspiracy theory, and we'll leave your head spinning, but we're not here to talk about Tasmania, despite the island state recording hundreds of sightings since 1936. What's more bizarre is that the number of sightings originating from mainland Australia is at least equal and possibly runs into the thousands by some estimates. Once again, what's going on? Tasmanian tigers never roamed the mainland, at least not for thousands of years, did they? Well, interestingly, there is evidence to suggest the contrary. The generally accepted picture is that the Tasmanian tiger became extinct on the mainland some two to three thousand years ago. However, disappearing from the fossil record for 2,000 years is not the same as becoming extinct, and at this point some tiger enthusiasts relish in pointing out that the coelacanth, a massive deep sea fish, was unheard of in the fossil record for about mm, 65 million years before turning up in a trawl fisherman's catch off the coast of South Africa in 1938. 
Secondly, and a little closer to home, the Wallamai pine, a species of tree in a genus which disappeared from the fossil record two million years ago, turned up on Sydney's doorstep in 1994, standing perfectly still, only 150 kilometres from a city of four million people. In light of these examples, is it conceivable to think that thylacines did survive the 2,000 years between their disappearance from the fossil record and early European colonisation? Well, let's be realistic. The coelacanth lives 90 to 700 metres under the sea, and the wallamai pine lives in one of the most inaccessible bushland areas in Australia. Surely the largest carnivorous marsupial predator would have turned up at some point, producing a body for science to contend with. As it turns out, that's exactly what happened. Dr Robert Paddle in his popular book titled The Last Tasmanian Tiger uncovered some interesting documents in his research on early Australian literature. One naturalist of the early to mid-1800s, named Cambrian, recorded in a series of articles personally examining the remains, that being the head, feet and skin, of a thylacine that was killed in the Blue Mountains near Sydney. Cambrian also notes examining a second specimen, which Paddle deduces must have come from South Australia, in the Flinders Ranges, Lake Torrens region. South Australia, as it turns out, seems like a hotspot for Tasmanian tigers in the mid-1800s. Apart from Cambrian examining the body of one tiger there, Paddle informs us that an Aboriginal man, who was 100 years old in 1919, recalled seeing thylacines in his youth. This would have been around 1830. Not only do we have two cultures independently reporting tigers from the mainland at the same time, but the thylacine's presence, it seems, was common knowledge. Paddle provides the following report from the South Australian Record and Australasian Chronicle, 1840. The dog-faced Dasiurus, or native dog, is a marsupial animal covered with a dirty yellowish-brown fur, with transverse stripes of a brownish-black colour on its back. These animals occasion much annoyance to the first settlers of a country. In Van Diemen's land, it was found necessary to offer a reward. In the province of South Australia, it was also found necessary to offer a reward for destroying them, but their ravages are now pretty much confined to the thinly settled districts. Should we be surprised? that in 1973, Liz and Gary Doyle captured some rather remarkable film footage in South Australia. It shows a small quadrupedal animal running at full speed through a campground and across the road in front of the vehicle in which the couple was seated. The animal is a yellowish-brown colour and appears to show stripes in about half of the frames. Its tail seems long and thin and the rump joins the tail in a characteristically thylacine triangular shape. At all times the tail is held out behind the animal in a rigid fashion, and in a few frames the animal, mid-stride, is in a posture remarkably like that of a resting kangaroo. In light of Paddle's recently revealed evidence for mainland Tasmanian tigers in the early 1800s, and despite the majority opinion that thylacines became extinct on the mainland 2000 years ago, is it possible that we have genuine colour footage of the thylacine post-1936, and from the mainland no less? Through personal inquiries, I'm led to believe that the footage which is available on the internet is an MPEG encoding of VHS recording of a television broadcast of the original film. Put simply, it's not the best quality. Further, the camera jumps about and the whole sequence is only about six seconds long. I conducted a frame-by-frame -frame analysis of the apparent stripes on the animal, but had to come to the conclusion that this effect was due to the nature of the MPEG encoding. This doesn't mean the animal doesn't have stripes. It just means you cannot see stripes with the poor resolution. Others may draw different conclusions. The rigid tail is another matter, however. 
Once again, a frame-by-frame -frame comparison was made, this time with the footage of a running dog, a greyhound. This revealed a striking difference. The dog's tail is very flexible and is continually bending in different directions, whilst Doyle's animal holds its tail completely straight and rigid. However, just because a greyhound's tail is flexible, it does not mean every dog's tail is the same. Further, the most likely animal that this could be, apart from the thylacine, is a fox with mange. Mange is a skin disease in which the fur is often lost, which could explain why the tail appears so thin in the footage, rather than being big and bushy, as we are used to seeing on foxes. What's more, when foxes run, they do tend to hold their tails straight out behind them. However, the clincher with the Doyle film is that no matter how many videos I watch of foxes running, none ever assumes the kangaroo-like posture which can be seen in a few frames of the 1973 animal. In the end, while I cannot say that the South Australian footage can only be a thylacine, I feel I can say that all observable features are consistent with a thylacine. The questions I'd like to see answered are, where are the Doyles now? Can they share any new information on this film? Indeed, where is the original film? It should contain more detail, which might be crucial to deciding what this animal is. Tasmanian tigers on the mainland? It was documented a number of times in the 1800s, and they had the bodies to prove it. You can share your mystery animal sightings with Chris at wherelightmeetsdark.com. Next is the only blues Cab Calloway ever recorded about syphilis, the St. James Infirmary Blues. Folks, I'm going down to St. James Infirmary. Last week you got close and personal when you got your first dose of syphilis on diffusion. Try to relax while John August gives you the second dose. You'll hardly feel a thing. Syphilis is difficult to entangle from other diseases in history before it was known as a separate disease, even before there was a germ theory of disease. However, it's known that the syphilis microbe is closely related to the disease of yours. This is prevalent in tropical areas, is not spread sexually, and does not persist over decades. Yours itself seems to have developed from a microbe which infected other animals, which now seems extinct. 
as a result of perhaps increased clothing in colder climates or soap. The yours microbe adapted to more limited possibilities for contact, in particular sexual contact. The disease was first known as Morbus gallicus, the disease of the French or Gauls, carried by mercenaries to their native lands after the fall of Naples in 1495. In 1530, the Italian humanist physician associated the name syphilis with this disease, but I've not yet figured out whether that was some particular reference or just a nice sounding set of sounds. The term syphilis was used in the 18th century, but it was vague and applied to many other symptoms besides those of syphilis. When it first appeared, the symptoms were particularly horrendous. Ulrich von Hutten in the late 15th century wrote that ulcers and sores were acorns in size and shape and produced a loathsome smell. One suggestion is that a benign form of syphilis became particularly virulent in the 15th century when the disease was first described. Over time it became less virulent through natural selection because the longer the patient survived before dying, the more infectious the microbes could be. This is a known effect. Diseases which have spread through insects or other animals, so-called vectors, or through an infectious agent like sewage, do not become less virulent with time. But diseases which are spread from person to person, particularly while a person is infectious but mobile, like the common cold, tend to become less virulent over time. On this theory, syphilis first arose in Europe and was spread around the world, particularly to the Americas, by trade and fleets. However, there is evidence that syphilis was present in the Americas prior to Columbus, and some suggest it in fact travelled from the Americas to Europe. More involved theories see New World venereal syphilis joining with existing Old World endemic syphilis to produce the serious epidemic of the 16th century. Toward the 1700s, the term Lewis venera, or venereal disease, replaced Morbus gallicus. Venus was the goddess of love, and those diseases were mostly identified through their relationship with sex. Nowadays, we use the term sexually transmitted disease for such diseases. The term sexually transmitted infection is also used, partially because infection sounds less cutting. However, technically an infection need not cause symptoms, while the disease means symptoms have appeared. While syphilis is in its dormant phase, we might be said to have an infection, but when it reappears as tertiary syphilis, we can then be said to have a disease. In, in addition to being called French pox and venereal disease, it was also called the great pox in order to distinguish it from the other pox, smallpox. While smallpox is carried by a virus, the rash of smallpox sometimes mimics the secondary stage of syphilis or the great pox. Historically, syphilis was treated using mercury, including liquid mercury and its salts like cinnabar. There's reference to this in the Sharp novels by Bernard Cornwell, set in the time of the Napoleonic Wars. One character asks another, how's the syphilis? And the answer is, mercury's cleared it up nicely. This character goes somewhat batty as the years progress, and we're left wondering if it was the effect of syphilis or the mercury with which it was treated. Was mercury effective? It was used before we had a germ theory of disease, so it's difficult to tell. Mercury caused intense salivation, but, and according to the humoral theory, this demonstrated that the disease was being shed from the body. But we now know salivation to be the result of mercury poisoning. Mercury reacts with sulphur, and the metabolism of syphilis is dependent upon the enzyme thyroredoxin, which has exposed sulphur out of atoms, which possibly reacted with the mercury. However, while it may stop microbes multiplying for a while, it does not seem to kill them, and the mercury had its own very toxic side effects. We also know that symptoms of syphilis come and go of their own accord, so it was probably only marginally effective. It has been impossible to culture the microbe, 
and while some rodents and primates can be infected, it becomes a different disease. Unlike its relative York, which can survive for a time outside the body and can be transmitted by contact, syphilis cannot survive for long outside the human body. It is only spread through intimate, normally sexual contact. And once inside, it wreaks havoc over a very long time period, but only in humans. It's a very particular microbe. So, while we can treat syphilis, and while we can examine its genetic sequence and compare it to its relatives, in some ways we in fact know very little about it. The fact that there are no other animal carriers, only human beings, has prompted some people to think about eradicating the disease. But while it can be treated, being unable to culture the bacterium means it is very difficult to develop a vaccine. It's been noticed that syphilis never took hold of the Australian Aboriginal populations in the north or southeast of Australia, and the suspicion is that this is the result of an immunity granted through contracting yours in childhood. Where Aboriginal populations have been treated for yours, there has been a higher incidence of syphilis. This brings me to the end of part two. Syphilis is quite prominent in history, whatever the details, the result of an accidental mutation at some time in the distant past. But history has a way of amplifying the accidental, the incidental and the coincidental. That was John August with the second dose of syphilis. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2sr.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Next up, the Exxon Singers with Efficiency. Efficiency, efficiency, speaking governmentally. Efficiency is in a sorry state. The government now accepts it, and business takes it on the chin. Who can be efficient and still regulate? Reasonable government guidelines. Now that's okay. We don't mind if the government has its fair say. But too much control now that just gets in the way of efficiency. I said efficiency. That good old-fashioned red, white, and blue-ish efficiency. Is your privacy the latest victim in the war on terror? Deputy Prime Minister Julia Gillard has announced that the current system where employees need to give consent for their email to be read and where any wiretapping powers need the warrant of a judge are to be overturned in favour of making employers judge and policemen. Employers will be given policing powers to read the private emails of their employees without consent. The rationale is that this will stop networks of private companies being used to cause problems with essential services, like electricity. The only known case of an essential service going down due to the abuse of a private network is the rolling blackouts caused in California. However, the criminals were not the employees, but the executives of Enron. So giving this power to the executives might be like giving the keys to the henhouse to the fox. Now, the only way that emails can hurt an electronic network infrastructure is if they contain a virus attachment. Email attachments are automatically opened up in Outlook, which is why Outlook and Outlook Express are the vehicle of choice for virus programmers. Most bosses and managers use Outlook and Outlook Express, which would execute the virus code and infect the network. So this terror law won't actually achieve any prevention in crime. 
It's pretty easy and common practice to filter incoming emails anonymously to stop viruses and worms. Is Australia sleepwalking into a police state? Students at Sydney High School certainly think so. The New South Wales state government has forced compulsory finger scanning in schools for attendance. Even when parents don't give permission, pupils are forced to have their fingers scanned for roll call. This is in direct contravention of the Data Protection Act. Truancy is not a major problem in New South Wales schools. This policy was never publicly announced, but it has been discussed at the state parliament level. Six public schools are currently using the New South Wales Department of Education policy to scan children's fingers for roll call. At Karingai High School, the system has been suspended after complaints from a Year 10 student about intimidation and bullying from staff when he refused to comply with their voluntary system. The principals who use the finger scanning technology claim that individually scanning over a thousand students to a network computer system every day is cheaper than roll calling by voice and paper. The system works by having all the students put their fingers on the scanner and having their fingerprints match up with computerised records. However, the principals also say that no records of fingerprints are kept. Most ear, nose and throat diseases are spread by hand, but so far no comments been made on how infectious these finger scanning terminals have become during the trial. Of course, fingerprint scanning technology has already been easily fooled. One technique is to use fingers made from Play-Doh, moulded to fit the fingerprints. In Germany, a hacker group concerned about the government threats to privacy have published in their magazine a plastic foil containing the German interior minister's fingerprint. If you're going to fake it, why not fake the guy who's watching you? The group used social engineering to grab a glass used by Minister Wolfgang Schorbel during a panel discussion. The minister wants fingerprint scans to be included in the ePass smart card. There are now over 4,000 copies of his fingerprint in circulation and it may become available over the internet. Premier Maurice Yemmer has distanced his government from their own policy by stating that it's up to the schools whether or not they use the technology. The Department of Education's plan to collect and share the fingerprint scans of school children seems likely to be safe unless somehow children gain access to Play-Doh. And that was all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild passionate praise, then send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were AJ Epstein, John August, Chris Rayberg, and Victoria Bond. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SCR Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us in your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.